Welcome to this week's message at Corner Bible Church. We're so glad that you could join us. If you'd like more information on our church, you could check us out at our website, cornerbiblechurch.com, or you can like or follow us on Facebook. Now here's this week's message. Thank you for listening. Good morning. How's everyone doing today? Awesome. Beautiful Sunday so far, amen? Amen. Well, my name is Davis. I am one of the teaching pastors here at Corner. And I'm super excited. We get to open up God's Word together this morning. I know I say that every single week, but it truly is an honor and a privilege to be able to open up God's Word together. So if you have your Bibles, please open them. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11 this morning. Luke chapter 11 will be in verses 14 through 28. Verses 14 through 28. I'll give you guys a second to turn there. I'm going to grab some water because we've got a chunk of Scripture to read here. We'll start out in verses 14 through 19 together. It says this. Now when he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Let's pray together. Father, I want to take a quick moment just to thank you for your word. I thank you so much for giving it to us. Thank you for your son and the ability, because of his death on the cross for our sin, that we are able to stand here righteous before you. Out of our works of what you've done. God, I pray for us as we approach this text this morning. God, I pray for any distraction in our mind. Maybe this week was heavy and it's still weighing. Maybe anxiety was tough. Maybe there was the family drama. Father, help us put these things out of our mind as we approach your word. Help it to inform us, challenge us, and shape us as we approach you this morning. In your name we pray, amen. So when I was a kid, I absolutely loved tournament brackets. I love tournament brackets. In fact, I've never been much of a sports fan, but every March, my family was really big into March Madness. How many of you have ever done a March Madness tournament bracket before? All right, yeah, I love doing those things when I was growing up. I do nothing about basketball, but I absolutely love filling out those sheets and figuring out which one was going to win and see which one of us was closest at the end of the tournament. I remember one year, my brother, this is like around 2006, 2007, somewhere in there, 
It was a year that uh, George Washington University was like an eight or a nine seed. I can't remember which one it was. But my brother, who was like in first grade at the time, uh, had just learned about George Washington in school. And he was like, you know, learn about, you know, as the first general of the United States and all that. And he's like, they're going to go all the way, you know. So he put them all the way to the beginning. He didn't, he didn't do well that year. But um, for, for me, so I, as you, most of you know, I am a huge nerd. I'm a huge nerd at heart, and I didn't, the apple didn't fall far from the tree because my dad is also a huge nerd. And very quickly, as we became teenagers, uh, we shifted away from basketball tournament brackets to Star Wars tournament brackets and Marvel tournament brackets. What we would do, it's really nerdy, uh, we would take our favorite characters, we would assign them a seed from 1 to 16, we put them in a bracket, and then we invented an intricate dice system to figure out pluses and minuses which one would win, and then we'd predict them, and then we'd play it out. I didn't date much in high school. <laughs> we had a blast with it, and my favorite uh, battle in those brackets was between the first seed... And the 16th seed, right? Because in the Star Wars bracket, you'd have like uh, Luke Skywalker, right, as a number one seed. And in the 16th uh, seed, you'd have C-3PO, right? And, like, and I'm like, you start thinking, you're like, okay, if, if Luke Skywalker and C-3PO got in a fight, who would win, right? Who would win? Luke Skywalker, it wouldn't even be a contest, right? He'd be like, I am human, cyber, you know, like it'd be all done, all done. Or if you look at the superhero bracket, right, you have Incredible Hulk as a one seed, right? Oh, Hulk smash, right? And the other 16 seeds, you have Aquaman, right? Which one's going to win in a fight? The, the Incredible Hulk. It's not even a contest, all right? Not, okay, I hear some rumbling. It's, it's totally a Hulk, okay? <laughs> totally the Hulk. Now, I know I'm setting you up a little bit here, but if we had to put Jesus... And Satan, or the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of Satan in a fight, which one's going to win? Jesus. And I know this is church and every answer is Jesus, but it's true. And I think it's really important for us to make note of that because I think sometimes, even those of us in the church, we come into this idea of dualism. This lie we end up believing in our culture. That there is a good, that there is evil, and they're in this eternal fight, and it's, we're not really sure which one's going to win. You look back at like a Lord of the Rings, right? Anybody read Lord of the Rings or watch Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings makes a picture of there is good, there is evil, and you're not really sure which one is going to win in the end, right? That's not the story the Bible shows forward. That's not the story. The story that the Bible is putting forward is not only is, is Satan weaker, but Satan's already lost. To put it in the basketball term, Satan is a 16 seed. Jesus is a one seed. It's not even a competition. It's not even a competition. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan isn't powerful, right? That doesn't mean he's not powerful. Scripture says he walks around like a roaring lion looking for what? Someone to devour. He has power. What it means is when it comes to the infiniteness of the power of God, of the kingdom of God, and the power of Satan, there is not even 
contest. So what Jesus does when he comes on the scene in the book of Luke here, and he is talking about a kingdom, and he is talking about this powerful kingdom that he is bringing, he is saying, you might be fighting against some darkness now. You might be going through some difficult stuff right now, but I am bringing something far more powerful. I'm bringing a kingdom. Powerful. What this passage does that we just read a couple seconds ago, is it first points out the battle that's happening. And it's not a battle between like Russia and Ukraine, it's in the physical realm. The battle under the surface. The passage is about the battle that takes place in you and me. The war in us. The war with our vices, the war with our heartbreak, the war with our search for joy, the war that will bring lasting change in us. Something will reach, us in, reach in and make us less anxious. Something will reach in and make us less angry and bring healing. When you really boil this passage down, that's what it's all about. Take a look back down at your text with me here, verse 14. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. We see here in the text that Jesus is out healing again, as we've seen a billion other times in this text. He's out there healing, and this time specifically, it points out a demon-possessed man. If you look at your text, you see that this demon didn't just affect a small piece of this man's life. It wasn't like something he could go to parties and just kind of like hide it a little bit. This affected everything about him. He couldn't speak. He couldn't interact. This demon had such a grip on this man's heart that he couldn't even speak anymore. It says when Jesus comes into this scene, he casts out the demon, and this man that has tried everything, that he's probably gone to the priest, he's tried all of the world's wisdom, he's tried all the different things, and nothing worked, all of a sudden this demon is gone. He can speak. He can interact. He can be heard. And everyone gets super excited, like, wow, God is doing some amazing things here. But, what's your text say? Some of them said. Rumor starts going around. Some of them said, Cast out demons by Beelzebub. Now there's a baby name for you, right? Beelzebub. Don't do that, don't do that. Beelzebub here is another name for Satan. And what the Pharisees here are doing, which are spreading this rumor, the religious leaders, what they are trying to do is they are trying to discredit Jesus. They're trying to say, this guy might say he's something special. This guy might say he is a healer. This guy might say he was able to change your life. But in actuality, at the bottom line, is he's actually working for Satan. He's actually working for Satan as a double agent, and he's making himself seem like he's something, but he's actually an agent of the devil who's actually casting out demons by the power of 
Satan. And Jesus hears this happening, and he goes back to your text here, and he responds to them. Verse 17, he says, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. For if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God is come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his foil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's a lot of word pictures in this section that Jesus uses, but the boiled down point is Jesus is saying, I am essential for salvation. I am essential for salvation. What Jesus does here at the very start, he goes on a quick logic rant. He's like, some of you guys are saying I'm using the power of Satan to cast out demons. He goes, if that was true, if I'm I'm an agent of Satan and I go up to a fortress owned by Satan and I say, hey, demons go out of him, I'm bringing different demons in. He goes, the kingdom of Satan is not very efficient. That doesn't make any sense. He says, I'm not an agent of Satan. But what he does here is he takes the opportunity to turn the question back on the Pharisees. It takes a moment to turn the question right back on the Pharisees. Because he says, if you think I do it this way, at least change is happening. What excuse do you have for not being able to do anything? What excuse do you have for not being able to do anything? In this comment, he's calling out the Pharisees who were training the people to be religious, but not actually giving the people the ability to change. See, what Jesus is getting at, he's asking the question, is this religion stuff working out for you? Because the proof's in the pudding here. See, the people in Jesus' day got really caught up with doing all the right stuff. They got really caught up with going to the temple each week. They got really caught up with uh, saying all the right prayers. They got really caught up with uh, trying to do all the right sacrifices and making sure they followed the letter of the law completely. They got caught up in memorizing the Old Testament. They got caught up in trying harder. They got caught up in doing all of these things for God. They got so busy for God that they missed the God who was actually there to change them. They got so caught up with trying to be religious, trying to earn God's approval, they missed God entirely. 
And what Jesus is doing in this situation is he's asking them a question. He's asking the Pharisees. He's asking the people. He's asking us through the taxes, what do you rely on to determine your status with God? What do you rely on to determine your status with God? And I don't think I need a huge punchline here for this to preach well today. Because how often, how often do we fall into a very similar mindset? How often do we, if we're going through something or we're trying to know God, we're like, okay, if I just read the Bible more, if I just pray more, if I just go to church more, if I just volunteer in the Sunday school, or I just volunteer in this, or I just go do that, or if I go on this missions trip, or if I just go do this thing, maybe God will notice. Maybe God will love me. Maybe God will finally forgive me for that thing. Maybe God choose me. See, I remember when I was a teenager, if I had a really good spiritual week, if I uh, did spend a lot of time in my devotions, if I uh, memorized scripture, if I volunteered a lot, and I thought God was really happy with me. He was looking down and saying, oh, yeah. I don't know why he has the Kool-Aid man voice, but I thought he was looking down like, good job. And I feel really good about myself. If I paid attention in church, if I was taking notes, or whatever the case may be, I thought God was happy. But the inverse was also true. If I was really busy on a day and I happened to miss doing my devotions or I didn't get to do enough of my devotions or if I wasn't able to volunteer or I wasn't paying attention because there's something else on my mind or whatever the case may be, then the God's looking up there going, boo. Disapproving. And really, when it came down to it for me, my spiritual walk was comprised of God loving me or not loving me based on my performance that week. Based on how well I did. And I don't say this to say praying isn't important or or reading the Bible isn't important or going to church isn't important. These are all essential. They're part of your Christian walk. They're things God calls you to do. When our motivation is wrong, we miss the point. I love it when uh, Mike and Riley and the team are up here leading worship, and man, they, they just do such an amazing job. I love sitting and I love hearing God's word taught. I love going back into those Sunday school rooms or meeting in Bible studies or small groups and talking about going really deep Maybe you do too. But if you are basing where you are at with Jesus that week based on the things you are doing or the things you are not doing, you have missed Jesus. 
Jesus didn't come to make you religious. Jesus came to set you free. And to do that, he didn't lay out a set of demands of all the stuff you have to do before you come to him and he forgives you. He says, come, confess, turn away from these things, follow me, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He says, you don't have to pick yourself up first, clean yourself off, have a six-month track record of showing who who the new person you're going to be, and then you come to me. He says, come to me, I'll clean you. He says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And in this passage, what Jesus is saying to these people, he's saying, you get a choice. You get a choice. You can keep doing the same things you've been doing. You can keep trying to determine your relationship with God based on the same set of criteria you have and running the rat race of religion. You can keep going with all your traditions of trying to earn your way to God, trying to use worldly methods to fix your problems, or you can come to me. Let me clean you. What he's doing is he's forcing people to come to a conclusion about him. Forcing the issue. In our video each week, when the voiceover of Mike comes on, there's that first question. You guys have seen it like 30 times now. What's that first question? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Your answer to that question is probably the most important thing about you. There's been a lot of opinions about Jesus over the years. Some people call him a good moral teacher. Some people call him a myth. Some people call him a social liberator. Some call him insane. In fact, C.S. Lewis, awesome, awesome theologian, once said, we are forced to come to a decision about Jesus. It's impossible to remain passive about a conclusion on Jesus. He doesn't let himself be categorized passively. In fact, Lewis would even go so far to say that it's impossible to call Jesus a good moral teacher. It's impossible to call him that. Because underneath all of the good morals, underneath of all of the good teachings of a moral teacher, you have a man who's claiming to be God. And if that's not true, there's no way he's a good moral teacher. He's delusional. In fact, Lewis says there's only three places you can put Jesus. Three conclusions you can come to about Jesus. You can call him a liar. That's not true. That it's all a farce and none of this stuff stuff he has the power to do is true. You can call him a lunatic because maybe he does believe it and he's just crazy like every other cult leader that's ever lived. Or three, he's Lord. It is true. He can change people. He can heal. He can reorient the soul. He can bring you back to God. And if that is true, then the only response is to fall at his feet and worship. Jesus is saying, he is, I am essential for salvation. He's saying religion is not the answer. I am. Worldly philosophy is not the answer. I am. Chasing after your own dreams, not the answer. I am. 
He's the one who died to set you free. He's the one that unlocks the shackles, sets captives free. He says, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's essential. But he's also saying something else here. He's also saying not only is he essential for salvation, but he's also essential for sanctification. Take a look down at your text again at verse 24. It says this. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places thinking, seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to the house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds uh, the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. See, what Jesus does here is he uses a word picture to show the difference between a temporary healing and lasting change. Experiencing freedom. Jesus is talking about long-term change here. See, in this specific context, he's talking about demonic possession, but the implications of this text go much further. They even go to our relationship to our sin. See, Jesus says here that it's one thing to kick a demon out of someone's the house of someone's heart, but if something doesn't take its place, it's going to come back. What Jesus is saying is this. If this is someone, have this filth. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's bitterness. Fill in the blank. He says, you can empty this out But unless you replace it, it's going to come back. And what happens a lot of time in our relationship to sin is this happens to us. Right? We, 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 we've come to Christ, we say, thank you Jesus for forgiving me, this is great, this is awesome, and you realize, man, I really struggle with anxiety, I need to get rid of that, so we pour it out. I'm not going to do it anymore. Not going to do it anymore. Or maybe it's anger, and you're like, oh, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. Nope, not going to be angry anymore, even when they cut me off in traffic, even when the news isn't good, even when uh, my country's not going the way I want it to, I'm not going to get angry anymore. Maybe it's lust, and you're like, you know what, not going to do it, I'm throwing my computer away. Not gonna, I can't lust if I'm not on the computer, right, there we go. Maybe it's bitterness. Not going to be bitter anymore. I just won't see him anymore, it's not going to be bitter, I'm not going to be bitter. And it's empty. It's empty, right? It's gone. We're, we're good to go. We're good to go. But what happens when you are, are rushing with bitterness and you, you're like out of sight, out of mind, I'm not going to worry about it anymore, and you run into them at Walmart? What happens? It's all there again, isn't it? All those same thoughts. It comes, I'm not going to pour this back in there. I'm not going to make a mess. It all comes pouring back in. What happens when uh, your solution to get rid of lust is to just throw away the, your phone or throw away your computer? You're going to be out at the mall. You're going to be out at the store. You're going to go to the beach with your family. You're going to go somewhere, and guess what's going to happen? 
all going to come right back. What happens when uh, you're saying, I'm not going to be angry anymore. I'm just not going to be angry about it. I'm not going to watch the news anymore. I'm not going to worry about what's going on with my country. I'm not going to do any of that stuff. Well, what's going to happen when you drive by that political sign in some of your neighbor's yard? You're like, Rrr. Because we've never dealt with the problem. We got rid of a symptom. And what Jesus is saying is, unless this container is refilled with something else, Unless this is refilled, it's going to come back. I meet with a, a lot of Christians who struggle through a, a bunch of different stuff, and I've been there too. See, I found a lot of times as we, we will submit to Jesus to be forgiven, but we won't submit to the other commands to walk in his authority. Submit to him. What he's saying here, we look at, look at your uh, Colossians, it says put off worldly things, right? It says put off sexual morality, put off anger, put off bitterness, put off wrath. What's the next verse? Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness. Put on humility, meekness, patience. As the Lord forgave you, so you must also forgive. In fact, it goes on to say, let the thief no longer steal, but let him do honest work with his hands. Put off. Put on. So as you put off the old thing, Jesus is saying something else must replace it. Something else must take its spot. Passionate hearts, meekness, humility. As the Lord forgave you, so you must also forgive. So when you run into that person at Walmart, all of a sudden there's no room for this thing anymore. There's no room for anxiety. You're resting in Christ's identity in you. There's no room for uh, anger because you know Christ has already forgiven you, so why would you be angry with somebody else? And you submit to Christ's authority in your life. Walk in the ways that he calls you to walk. It wards off temptation. Because you see, you're not going to get value from this stuff anymore. You're not going to be satisfied from this stuff anymore. This is the stuff that's going to bring the lasting joy. The only way to get that is to submit to Christ's authority in our lives. Jesus is saying he's not only essential for salvation, submission to him is needed for lasting change. Mike, you want to come up? Closes out the passage here. Take a look down at your next couple verses. As he says these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
This woman shouts out at the end of the message. I don't know if they're in a building somewhere or if they were out in a field somewhere, but she says, blessed are you because it sounds awesome. It sounds new. It sounds exciting. It challenges the system. We all get excited when something new comes around. But Jesus says here, blessed are those who not only hear me and listen to me, but blessed are those who actually go and do it. You were never designed just to hear God's word, but you were designed to follow it. James 1 says, don't be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. Hear of the word is like somebody who looks in the mirror and they go to work in the morning, they got cream cheese from their bagel all over their face, and they're like, good enough, right? And you go to work. Just don't do that. Deal with it. Walk it out. And maybe some of us in this room this morning have been trying to run the rat race of religion. Maybe you've been here this morning and you're like, you've been using your performance to determine your relationship to God. That, doesn't, that does not where I draw that from. My, my, my pleasure in you is found what, what Christ did for you on the cross. Because look at the cross, it was enough. It was enough. Or maybe you're in here today and you've just been wrestling and wrestling and wrestling through sin issues. My question is, have you replaced it? Have you replaced it? Have you submitted to his authority in your life? Thank you for joining us for this week's message here at Corner Bible Church. If you would like more audio resources, please follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Or you can go online and visit us on our webpage at cornerbiblechurch.com.